Good evening, and welcome to this Princeton Public Lecture. I'm Sanjeev Arora, the chair of the Princeton Public Lecture Committee. And uh, uh, tonight's lecture is by Professor Alan Walker, and uh, it's, it's uh, sponsored by the Lewis Clark Benuxum Foundation. It's a fund at the Princeton University. Uh, it was founded uh, by a bequest of $25,000 by Mr. Lewis Clark Benuxum of the class of 1879 in 1912. Now, uh, a few like me know about compound interest, and, and when you hear about such a figure, you wonder, well, how much did that bequest of $25,000 um, in 1912 grow to uh, by now? And I won't say that except to note that it has enabled us to bring to the campus people such as Edwin Hubble, Thomas Mann, Ralph Ellison, and Carl Sagan, and tonight, Alan Walker. Uh, Professor Alan Walker will be introduced by Professor Alan Mann of Princeton University's Department of Anthropology. Uh, Professor Mann is a physical anthropologist whose interests include paleoanthropology and human evolution, and he's written about human biology and behavior an anthropological perspective. Uh, please welcome Professor Mann. Good evening. Uh, it's a great pleasure for me to be up here to introduce Professor Alan Walker. Uh, just before we realize that we have been colleagues for 40 years, uh, and since Professor Walker will, in fact, touch on some uh, fossil evidence, it may be apparent that we are part of the evidentiary uh, system that he'll be talking about. Next January, we will celebrate the 60th anniversary of the publication of one of the most notable volumes on evolution of the 20th century, the book Genetics, Paleontology and Evolution, under the editorship of Princeton paleontologist Glenn Jepson and evolutionary biologist George Gaylord Simpson and Ernst Meyer, was the outcome of a conference held here on the campus of Princeton University in 1947, actually in the Princeton Inn, which many of you know is now Forbes College, and it was convened to examine the importance and assess the importance and impact of the recently articulated but still relatively unfamiliar synthetic theory of evolution, what we now call neo-Darwinism. The publication of this book by the Princeton University Press played an important role in the wide dissemination of neo-Darwinism uh, as most of you know, the very basis of the explanation we now use to account for the diversity of life on the planet. In, in this context, it's a great pleasure for me to introduce our speaker this evening, Professor Alan Walker, the Evan Pugh Professor of Biological Anthropology at Pennsylvania State University. With his research and publications, Dr. Walker has played a no less impressive role in paleoanthropology in the development of our understanding of the early phases of the evolution of the human lineage. In addition 
to his contributions to human evolutionary studies, his scholarly activities have also included the natural history of the prosimian primates on the island of Madagascar and geological investigations on Mesozoic and Cenozoic deposits in England. His primary work, however, has been on the higher primate fossil record preserved in the sediments of East Africa's Rift Valley. For over 40 years, Professor Walker has been actively involved in the excavation, reconstruction, and analysis of a wide variety of fossil specimens from this incredibly rich area. He has often developed a variety of innovative methods of analysis in dealing with these extremely important and unique testaments of our evolutionary history. For example, he was one of the pioneers in investigating the way by which we can reconstruct the dietary patterns of our early ancestors by looking at the traces of microscopic wear marks on the dentition of earlier fossil forms. And indeed, we were just talking with him earlier about some very, very interesting new developments looking at the particular anatomies of the semicircular canals in the middle ear of many different forms in a way by which he hopes to reconstruct more understanding of the way by which our ancestors developed bipedality and how their locomotor patterns may have uh, been similar or different to ours. Perhaps I should stress one of his most notable efforts, and that is the excavation with his colleague, Kamoya Camus, of the virtually complete skeleton of an adolescent boy who died on the western edge of northern Kenya's Lake Turkana about one and a half million years ago. The skeleton of this youngster is the most complete skeleton we have documenting the earliest phases of human evolution and in fact will not be matched until our ancestors come up with the very wonderful idea of deliberately burying their dead, which occurs more than a million years later. The book, edited by Professor Walker and Richard Leakey, has provided us with a treasure trove of invaluable information about the biology and adaptation of this boy. This includes processes of growth and development, hand manipulative skills, levels of cognitive complexity, as well as more mundane but still important data like the child's height and weight and, uh, and potential weight. Regrettably for the boy and, and, and for us, what was not preserved was the way by which this child died. Professor Walker, writing with his wife, Dr. Pax Shipman, has furnished even more insights about the discovery and reconstruction of the skeleton in their highly readable book, the, the Wisdom of the Bones. In addition to this work, Professor Walker has collaborated with Richard Leakey in the reconstruction and analysis of a whole group of very early members of our genus from the fossil-rich areas east of Lake Jacana. These fossils have given us numerous insights into the origins of the genus Homo and ultimately a greater understanding of the appearance of modern humans. More recently, 
He has worked with Mivliki to assess the evolutionary relationships of Australopithecus anamensis at four million years, one of the earliest well-documented members of the human lineage. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that Professor Walker is one of the most respected scholars in paleoanthropology. His research, both in the field and in the laboratory, has been instrumental in establishing much of our basic knowledge of the evolutionary beginnings of the human lineage. This evening, Professor Walker has chosen to explore issues in the evolution of modern human anatomy. His lecture is entitled, The Human Body as an Evolutionary Patchwork. And I should mention, uh, just before I uh, give the podium over to him, that Professor Walker will be, in fact, here to answer any questions you might have after his lecture. So it is with the greatest of pleasure that I turn the lectern over to him. Thank you. Well, it's very nice to be welcomed so uh, fully at, at this university. It's the first time I've been to Princeton, although I've worked at Harvard and Hopkins and places nearby. Um, uh, if this, can people hear me properly or not? Can you turn the sound up, please? People can't hear me properly. Um, what I'm going to do tonight is, first of all, I want to disconcert you. I'm try I asked the man to, to turn it up, so... Um, I want to disconcert you. I want you to... F Still not very loud, is it? Is it possible to make it louder? Yes, is it possible to make it louder? Is it possible to make it louder? Um, is that better? A little bit? Not much. They're trying hard. It's a, a computer system. That sounds better. Okay. So I really want to, dis I, I want to tell you something about human evolution. But first of all, I want to disconcert you. Um, when we grow up, uh, we, we aren't individuals. We don't see ourselves as individuals. We come to learn ourselves that we're individuals. And um, that becomes fixed in our life. And I want to point out to you that you're not as fixed an individual as you'd like to think. That's the first point I want to make. And when I've gone through that, that you should feel really disconcerted. <laughs> then I'll talk to you about human evolution. And by the time I've finished talking about human evolution, you'll have forgotten all about that. And you'll feel perfectly individual again. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to show you lots of trees. And they're resemblance trees, and this is a tree of life. And it's done by Carl Wos and colleagues uh, at the University of Illinois, and it shows the three major domains of life, uh, bacteria here, single-celled organisms, archaea here, single-celled organisms, eukarya here, mostly single-celled organisms. And uh, we're somewhere in here at the tiny tip that has animals, fungi, and plants in it. Now, it's really interesting to know that all these things up here, mostly all of those things up here, can't manage on their own without these things. And these things are called mitochondria. And they live in our cells to a variety of volume. 
um, on a normal day, maybe some of your cells have about 15% of volume of mitochondria. If you're ill or you change your physiology, you might get up to 40% of these things. These are bacteria from here that have shifted by horizontal transfer over to some eukaryotes and have become stuck in our cells to become the energy-producing organelles. So already you know that you're not an individual, you're half or 40% bacteria on any given day. We should make you think. This is a little picture of life inside a gut. And all those little rod-like organisms all over the gut are bacteria. You can't live without some, and others will kill you. Um, a former medical student of mine has recently looked at a whole spectrum of these things by DNA analysis and come to the conclusion there are all probably several hundred species in anyone's gut. Just at this moment, all of you have three or four pounds of them in your gut, let alone in your hair follicles, in your sweat glands, in your skin, and so on. So remember that you can't do without them and that that, that bacterial DNA and those bacteria are really part of you. And then there are viruses. This uh, depiction of a virus is not a human virus. It's one that... No, it's not. No, it can't be with the amplitude. I'm, no, it's, it's okay. Um, this is, I'm sorry, this is, a, uh, this is not a human virus. This is the foot and mouth uh, virus, the hoof and mouth virus, you call it in this country. And, uh, and it, of course, affects us only indirectly since it affects our animals. Um, so how many viral particles do you have on you in a given day? Well, I've just been in bed with the flu until a day ago, or a cold, or something that I got from my students. And... <laughs> And I was producing lots of viral particles, and some viral particles live in very special parts of our bodies. For instance, some viruses that live deep under my brain in my trigeminal ganglion, a group of nerve cells, they raced out knowing that I was feeling very sick and formed a little cold sore spot on my lip, ready to make pustules and spread more virus particles, right? Because they thought I was going to croak. How many viruses do we have in our body? Well, it's impossible for me to tell you since I'm not a virologist, but there are viruses in our genome. There are retroviruses that are stuck in our genome. Most of them are dead, and they account for about 5% of the human genomic material. If retroviral elements, those uh, genetic elements that have the reverse transcriptase gene in them, are also from viruses, then up to a quarter of our genome is from viruses, not from humans at all. And, of course, apart from viruses and bacteria, you could have a whole pound or two of roundworms, depending on where you live and what you eat, or a nice, big, healthy tapeworm, more of which later. Okay? So just to show you that all these things add up to a whole symbiosis of organisms living within you, and as far as they're concerned, you're just one ecosystem that they can take advantage of. Then, of course, you know that you're losing lots of your body every day. I mean, you lose thousands of, of, of hair, of skin cells all the time, and your, your gut cells are turning over to a fantastic rate and so on. So you're not what you are a few minutes ago. 
Okay, so to put this in time, since I come from Penn State, my analogy is football, American football. <laughs> and so here at your own goal line, you've got 100 yards to go. This is the start of Earth at 4.5 billion or 4.6 billion. And nothing happens until about here, somewhere halfway through, when you get cyanobacteria and, the, and those organisms, those single-celled organisms, start producing a, a poisonous gas called oxygen. And that's when the mitochondria have to come into the picture. The first eukaryotes, cells with the nucleus, come in at about the 40-yard line. And then the first thing that looks like anything, like an animal, a plant, or a fungus, multicellular thing is here at the 12-yard line. The first mammals are at the six-yard line. The first primates to the order to which we belong are on the three- or four-yard line. And then, the, and then the first humans are on the last cuticle of the last blade of grass of, of the whole football field. So that's your time scale. Right? Now, of course, you can tell by my accent that American football is not my game. Soccer is my game. <laughs> and this, for those of you who don't know, is David Beckham and his wife, Victoria Beckham, commonly and affectionately known in Britain as Thick and Thin. So I'm just using them as two average humans, and let's see, and let's see what we look like. Two eyes, a backbone, three semicircular canals. They're little structures I'll talk about later on the side of your head. Jaws, four limbs, five digits, three ear ossicles, the same dental formula, the same type of teeth we have in our, in our jaws and external testes. Let's see how these things evolved and when we got them. 550 million, about the same. Same time as jaws, we got three semicircular canals on each side of our head, four limbs, 570, but it took us another 70 million years to settle down on five digits. There were seven and eight well before that. Three erosicles, 130 million years, the same dental formula, 35 million years, and external testes, about 90 million years. Now, I wanted to point on the last one. <laughs> and that's called intelligent design. <laughs> to have the gonads, the gonads, the stuff that carries the genetic message from one generation to the next in a little bag between your legs. Intelligent design? <laughs> now, I've taught medical students for a living for years and years and years. And if I ask any of them, and of course most uh, members of the public, why the human testes are hanging in a little bag between the legs, they'll say, well, they have to because the enzymes that are needed to make spermatogenesis to work properly have to work at a cooler temperature than body temperature. And that's true, right? But it isn't why. And the reason is this. I'm showing you another, another tree. I'm showing you another tree of mammals. But I don't have to show you mammals. I could show you birds. Anybody seen bird balls? <laughs> birds have a higher temperature than mammals, and they don't have external testes. They manage quite well. All fish have them internally, all reptiles, all amphibians. So why do mammals have them? Well, it's not only mammals. It's only some mammals. This is a, a tree, a resemblance tree on genetics of mammals. It's quite different from the one we understood just a few years ago because molecular phylogeny is much more accurate than morphological phylogeny. 
And what we found out is there are four main groups of mammals on Earth. And one group of mammals is this group, which are in Africa. We call them Afrotheas. And they're as strange as, as hyraxes, manatees, elephants, aardvarks, elephant shrews, and tenrex. All very different-looking animals, but they all came from one common ancestor in Africa when Gondwanaland was one. And this group of animals here in blue are anteater sloths and armadillos. They're called xenarthrins. They're from South America when South America was joined uh, to Africa. And then these two other groups, if you notice, this in green includes most common animals, animals like horses and whales and hippos and things. This group contains lemurs, humans, chimpanzees, and rodents, and that's our group. And those two groups, Afrotheas and Xenarthrins, those males have internal testes. Elephants have internal testes. Hyraxes have internal testes. Aardvarks uh, have internal testes. They manage quite well. They have the primitive condition and haven't bothered to change it. So we can ask, why does this group have uh, internal testes? Well, the first thing is there are two of them that do, whales and seals. And whales have to keep their testes cool, even though they're internal now, and they have a countercurrent cooling mechanism on the dorsal fin, and seals have to keep their internal testes cool by a countercurrent heating me uh, cooling mechanism on their hind flippers. So they were once outside, but have now gone back in, and it's very difficult to reverse evolution. The story about external testes is, in some small group of these mammals, early on, they were very small, and they had uh, a, breeding, a highly restricted breeding season where the testes had to descend and enlarge for sperm competition breeding. And then they would have to operate at cooler temperatures because that, they would be descended and to enlarge. And when the breeding season extended as the animals got bigger, then they were stuck with that simple system of, of cooling them down, and they're still stuck with it, and we're still stuck with it. So it's a much more complicated story than you'd think. But it's not intelligence, as you can see. Okay, so that's the, this group of, of, of mammals don't have external testes. Okay, so here's another tree, because I'm moving on to human evolution. And this is done by molecules now. Um, I'm a strong supporter of molecular phylogeny. And this is one that my colleagues and I published a, a little while ago. And it shows that if you look at all the genes you can, humans have a, a, a close living relative in the chimpanzees, the two species of chimpanzees, and then the gorilla, then the orang, then the gibbon, and then old world monkeys. And we can put some estimates of time on here based on uh, various ways of estimating that from from molecules and from fossils. So what about human evolution? Because I'm going to shift gears now and tell you a bit about the story of human evolution. And this, of course, is Michelangelo's David, which I'm going to show you from the front here, but I'll show you from the back later for a good reason. Uh, human evolutionary studies are largely driven by field discoveries. The field makes enormous jumps when we make great fossil discoveries. Um, it, it's... Uh, not a field that's often driven by new theoretical um, stances, but it can be, and you need both to work together. But without new fossils, we don't progress much. So I'm going to show you. This is what, if, if, if you ask me in the cafeteria, what's, what do we know about human evolution? This is what I draw on a napkin. Okay? So you can see it's six million years to today, and I've drawn the last common ancestor of chimps, and then... We've got creatures with thin enamel. They're bipedal by about five million years. They get thicker enamel and taller teeth and bigger teeth. And then there's a division. And one group of bipedal 
apes, uh, becomes, uh, they become very large with huge teeth, we call them robust, and they go extinct at about a million years ago for reasons we don't understand. On the other hand, another group of these creatures, the division, um, they have invented stone tools, chipped rocks. They might be throwing, I'll talk about that later, and they eventually get smaller teeth, and they get out of Africa for the first time, and they start making more and more complicated tools, uh, both chipped and throwing tools, and that lasts for a while. And then a second uh, out-of-Africa episode occurs very much more recently, and, and we spread all over the world and make a mess of the planet. So that's basically the story on a napkin. So now I'm going to tell you a bit about discoveries, just because people like discoveries. The first important discovery that shifted emphasis from Asia to Africa was made in the 1920s in South Africa in a cave deposit where quarry workers blasted out this little child's skull. And uh, a, a, an anatomist called Raymond Dart called it Australopithecus Africanus, the southern ape of Africa. It's a child's skull. And the establishment in paleoanthropology, which was in Britain at the time, uh, didn't uh, believe him. And it took uh, an adult skull to come to light, to, be, to change most people's minds. Dart himself wasn't the person who found the adult skull. Um, the, the person who found the adult skull was in more of a hurry than Raymond Dart, and he was in a real hurry because he was 80 years old and he wanted to know the answer. And his name was Robert Broom, and this is a photograph of Robert Broom shown just after he'd uh, done one of his hurried blastings in a cave. Instead of digging, he put sticks of dynamite in and blasted lumps of rock out and here you can see, after this flew out from, it, from the blast, and that's the top of a skull, and in here, Broom is pointing with his 80-year-old finger to the inside of the skull. So he did find an adult. And once adult Australopithecuses were discovered, it was clear that they were very much more like humans than people had suspected, and this is the skull that, Dart, that Broom blasted out. You can see where the blasting broke the, the skull cap off. Um, and uh, shortly afterwards, in Broom, with his uh, assistant, John Robertson, uh, worked on other caves, and they found similar creatures, but with bigger, even larger teeth, small front teeth like yours or mine, and molar teeth that you could um, fit five or six human molars on, enormous teeth. And so these were called robust australopithecuses. Um, in East Africa, uh, Lewis and Mary Leakey were working, uh, they were experts on stone tools, and here's Mary Leakey with her spotted Dalmatians, uh, and she found a skull at Aldivine in the 1950s, and it turned out to be another of these robust Australopithecuses, very much like the South African ones. In fact, I suspect that when all the evidence is in, these will just be the East African versions of the South African ones, and they won't be a different species at all. But Lewis named it Boise after Sir Charles Boise, who gave him money to find and then in Ethiopia, um, there are these wonderful sediments in the Rift Valley, and sediments uh, trap fossils, um, either in caves or in lake sediments like these. And in the 1970s, Don Johansson, showing a strong suntan there, and Tom Gray, found fossils washing out from this little hill, and they put little flags for every piece washing out, and they thought at first it, that this piece they first found at the bottom end of the humerus was from a little monkey. It was so tiny, but it was a small Australopithecus. And when they got back to camp with these bones, the guys in camp were playing the Beatles song, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, so she became known as Lucy. And it was one of the most complete skeletons 
of an Australopithecus. And if you mirror image and put things together, you can put together a lot of information about these early creatures. Just recently, a marvelous discovery has happened at the same place that Robert Broom uh, blasted out those fossils. This is a little bronze statue of Robert Broom with a, a, a little head of, of the fossil Australopithecus there. The cave that the fossils come from is actually on the top of this here. This is just a tourist attraction to see this statue and then a big cave underneath. Um, the top of the upper cave is gone where miners blasted it off and fossils have found. But if you go in this bottom cave, it's just a nasty, horrible, echoey cave. A colleague of ours, Ron Clark, who works at the University of Vortisran in South Africa, found a little box with some monkey foot bones in them. These are a few of them. And he recognized them not as monkeys, but of a small Australopithecus. And he also recognized that the little bones that go on these, this foot here um, could perhaps have come from the lower cave. So he got uh, Stephen Motsumi and, and Kwame Molethi, two of his great fossil guys who know how to find fossils. He gave them casts of these leg bones that had been broken. And he said, go into the bottom cave with your flashlights and look all over. See if you can find out where these two leg bones come from. And they found it. So they put these leg bones in, and then Ron dug in and chipped away the rock, and those lower leg bones come to the knee bones, and the knee bones go in, and then they go in, and there's a fossil fault, a geological fault, and then this is an arm bone, and now a complete undistorted skull of an Australopithecus with all its teeth in an adult. The, the brain case is empty except for a few crystals. They put a medical scope inside to photograph inside the brain case. And then further from, from here, this is the leg bones are down here and it comes up to here. This is the, across here is the upper arm bones from the shoulder blade all the way through and then to a complete hand. And there is the hand lying in the rock, maybe as much as four million years old, a perfect articulated hand. Now it happens that Ron was fired the day before he found this skeleton <laughs> by a young American who's in charge of the excavations there. But Ron had the permit to dig down here, so he's taking his time taking the skeleton out of the rock. And as soon as he was fired by the South African government, he got a salary from the Sengenberg Institute in Frankfurt to continue this work, which will last him until he retires. And he's taking it very slowly, and he's exposing the whole skeleton in the rock, making casts of it of photographs at every stage, because as soon as it comes out of the rock, he has to give it to this American. <laughs> anyway, you can see it's going to be a wonderful skeleton. So that's one of the most recent fossils. Now, among the other things we know about Australopithecus is it's clearly they were bipedal. Now, uh, humans are unfeathered bipeds. We walk on two legs uh, in a way that's not known for other mammals. So the fact that Australopithecus are bipeds walking like us, something like us, is very important. This, for instance, is a human knee joint. So this is the thigh bone on top of the tibia, the lower leg bone of a human. And you can see it's got that angle so that we bring our knees together to put our body weight over our foot when we walk. This is a chimpanzee that doesn't walk bipedally, and its leg is straight. This is an Australopithecus, and you can see that same strong angle is there. And Robert Broom and his colleagues noticed that as soon as they found those early on, and it's been confirmed many, many times over. So Australopithecus is our bipedal apes. They're in Africa at the right time, before humans, they were, they're known from 4.4 million till they die out at about a million years ago. 
and one of those species of Australopithecus was ancestral to our bipedal species. We even have confirmation from footprints. Mary Leakey's excavations at Lytoli in Tanzania showed uh, three individual Australopithecuses, one big one walking this way, with a smaller one walking in the big one's footprints, and then either behind or in front of it, not side by side, they were too close, but behind or in front, a smaller individual. And they're clearly bipedal footprints. Walking the other way across here are two three-toed horses. And there are many footprints of other extinct creatures, so we've got footprints to show they did walk bipedally. So these early ancestors of ours from somewhere, um, we're not sure about the earliest bipedal creatures that might be as early as six million, but um, from at least four and a half and, and, uh, million years uh, were bipedal. So small-brained creatures walking like something like us. So this is my summary of Australopithecuses, including the robusts, which some people call Paranthropus. They were ape, had ape-sized brains. They were upright and bipedal. The evidence is a bit controversial, but I believe they were sexually dimorphic. The males were much bigger than the females. Limb proportions were not quite like humans. They had a very broad and strange-shaped pelvis with a wide rib cage, large cheek teeth with very thick tooth enamel, and they had fast growth rates and short life history periods. That is, they grew up fast and died young. And they were probably all over Africa, but we only find fossils where we find fossils, where, where they've been uh, kept in sedimentary environments in caves or rivers or lakes, not over the rest of Africa, which, which is making soil and not making sediment. And they lasted from about four and a half million years to one million years. And our own line came from one Australopithecus, although we argue about which it is. The earliest Homo, I'm not going to tell you too much about it because everybody argues. So uh, we have early fossils of a human, like this maxilla, an upper jaw with teeth from about two and a half million years. And they are immediately associated with these things, which are chipped or hammered rocks. And it's pretty clear, I think, that everybody knows that the earliest stone tools are associated with the earliest humans, or the earliest members of the genus Homo, if you want to call them humans. Um, the first of, I'm going to talk mostly about a species called Homo erectus, which was first found by this man, Eugène Dubois, shown here with his wife Anna, who went off in the late 1800s to Java because they believed that that's where the, uh, the missing link would be found. And they found the early skulls of what we call Homo erectus, a bipedal human-like ancestor. And I've been involved with Homo erectuses a lot of my life. And we find them dead side by side and probably living side by side with robust Australopithecuses. So these two skulls that I'm showing you in front view and top view are from the same geological deposit at Lake Turkana in Kenya. And this one, as you can see, has enormously broad uh, cheekbones, uh, a crest on the top of its skull for the attachment of huge chewing muscles. This animal would have about a pound of steak on each side of its head to chew in, on, with enormous teeth. And this animal has a very large cranial capacity, a much larger brain. It's actually the size of a one-year-old human child. And uh, it has small chewing muscles, as you can see. They come through these holes here. And it's a much more human-like skull. But they lived side by side and died side by side. Um, this, this is about uh, 1.8 million years ago. So we have, it's a really intriguing situation. If you went to the zoo today, 
And we were able to look through the bars, and the sign said Australopithecus robustus, and you could see another bipedal creature. That would make your view of the world a little more different, I think. Anyway, unfortunately, they died. They became extinct about a million years ago. Now, uh, just another little bit of a discovery for, for Homo erectus, something that Alan mentioned. My friend Kamoya Kumau um, called Richard Leakey on the radio in 1984 and said, I found a piece of Homo erectus skull, and that's the piece of Homo erectus skull that he found. And so we went up to this place called Nariakotomy, and here's Kamoya. And the first thing we did, there's Kamoya loosening the topsoil here where the fossil bits were found. There's me, and there's me, Leakey, sitting out. And we, pr please notice this tree here that Kamoya's got his foot against. We found a lot of the back of the brain case of a single Homo erectus. And we didn't want to cut the tree down, because, you know, we're paleontologists, but we're also ecologists. We don't really like to cut trees down in the desert situation. This is a thing called a waiter bit. It's got thorns on it that hook you in the hair and your skin and your clothes, and it's a darn nuisance. I was all for chopping it down, but thank goodness that we didn't, because uh, we started to find other bits near the tree, and these are ribs. You can see they look like ribs in the ground. And then suddenly, uh, Richard uh, shouted at me, and he said, look, I found the face, and I'm holding the bits of face in my hand, and Richard had been cleaning around the roots of the tree, and I don't know what it's called, that piece of the tree that's just beneath the soil level that's not quite roots, but anyway, the face was stuck in it, right? And this, this tree had germinated in the only damp place in the desert, which was an upside-down Homo erectus skull. And the skull had gone off, the bits of the back of the skull had fallen downhill, and the face was stuck in the roots, right? So we carried on digging, and we dug for over four years, and there's Kamoya and, and, and another of our guys digging down. There's Richard lying down and me, and we're, I'm digging a tibia, and Richard's digging a jaw and something else. So at the end of the day, this is how much we got of a single skeleton. And it's a juvenile. Now, Alan called it a boy, but a boy has connotations to me. It has a human connotation. And I, you wouldn't call a young chimpanzee a chimpanzee boy. So I'm nervous about projecting any human capabilities back into the past unless we've got evidence for it. So it is a juvenile. This little tooth here is the, that's seen here and here is the milk canine tooth. Uh, so the milk canine tooth in an ordinary human population, depending where you come from, um, would be somewhere around about 11 or 12 years or something like that. His, his third molars in the upper jaw are just still in, in the upper jaw. He didn't seem to have any in the lower jaw. Homo erectus have reduced third molars like humans. Anyway, as you can see, it was quite a big juvenile for being 11 or 12. So with this one skeleton, as Alan said, we could do a lot of studies, and it's helped us a lot. Now, you have to understand that these are not the only fossils we found. Most fossils we find are scraps. They're a jaw with teeth in, or an upper jaw with teeth in, or a bit of face, or a bit of skull. And each fossil is a test of a hypothesis, and usually it says, well, we know what, today what we knew yesterday. And sometimes you find something that changes your mind. But with, with very few complete skeletons, you then have hundreds and hundreds of pieces of fragments. Now, one thing we knew from the archaeological record is that these animals, these bipeds that look like humans, were smashing up animal bones and chopping them up. And they left thousands of broken bones on, on living floors. And it looks as though they were much more carnivorous than, than any other primate or higher primate. But we don't have to turn to the archaeological record for that because we can turn to tapeworms for it.
This is a tapeworm, and some of you may have had tapeworms, and some of you may yet get them, but uh, it used to be thought so we got tapeworms from our animals, our domestic animals. But this study done by people at Beltsville in the U.S. Agricultural Department shows if you look at this tree, this is a genetic tree again, humans have a a tapeworm that is closely related to tapeworms of hyenas and African hunting dogs. And the other two human tapeworms are similar to each other. Their closest living tapeworms are tapeworms of lions. And this says that we didn't get our tapeworms from our domestic stock. We got them by eating the same animals that lions, hyenas, and hunting dogs ate millions of years ago when we became real carnivores. We became members of the guild of large carnivores. This is not just messing about eating a bit of meat on the side. This is getting tapeworms by eating the very same animals that hyenas, hunting dogs, and lions could eat. And as you know, humans can't process rotten food. Their bacterial helpers can't deal with it very well, unlike some animals, like hyenas. So uh, we are definitely more carnivorous. And we can ask, what does that do to us if, as a species, we go from being a herbivore to a carnivore? Because that has profound consequences for our physiology and biology. And the, the consequences are based on a very easy um, understanding of the feeding levels in organisms done, first of all, by an Oxford uh, biologist who just took a piece of grass outside of Oxford and counted everything that he could find living in it. A man called Elton, and these are called Eltonian pyramids, and it says that uh, the, uh, the grass gets all its energy from the sun, and so it, what it does is it only gets about 10% of the sun's energy to turn into grass. And animals that eat grass, in this case gazelles, only can manage to turn about 10% of the grass's energy into gazelle. And lions that eat gazelles can only turn about 10% of gazelle energy into lions. And so it goes on. So you end up with very few lions on top of a lot of grass that's on top of a lot of sunlight. And that's a simple energetic uh, process. So we expect now, we can make some predictions about what we'd expect to find in a human ancestor that changed from a vegetarian, chimp-like ancestor to something that's much more carnivorous. So there are some consequences we'd expect. We'd expect population densities to decrease since the top of the pyramid is, can't be bigger than the, the next layer down. Species range would increase because meat is meat. You don't have to have any special enzymes to eat meat. It's very easy to digest. And one animal's meat is another animal's meat. The actin and myosin molecules are the same, basically. So you don't have to worry about the defenses that plants have made because plants can't run away. They've made lots of sophisticated defenses in poisons and thorns and stuff like that. More habitats have become available because of that. More time is spent not feeding. I'll come to that later. The speed of locomotion should increase because animals can run away and plants can't. Gut size should reduce. Humans actually have very uh, small, uh, large guts because of their diet, the much more carnivorous diet. Well, we should use tools because our teeth aren't any good at eating and killing animals. And gestation periods should shorten, and infants should become more altricial. Uh, altricial infants are those like kittens that are born with their ears and eyes closed, as against precocial animals, like guinea pigs that can be born and start eating grass straight away. So let's look at a few of these. So first of all, these, these creatures that are bipedal, carnivorous animals, get, they get out of Africa. No Australopithecus ever got out of Africa. Over four million years of Australopithecus living, not one got out. So they got out because their species range increased enormously. 
So that's a prediction come true, and one of the first places we find it is here in the Republic of Georgia at a place called Daminizi, which is just there. And at Daminizi, which is a site that's only been known for the past few years, it's a remarkable site, and it's going to be one of the world's greatest fossil sites. Um, the site is a, a medieval village that you can see the ruins of here. And archaeologists were digging in the village, and I, I don't know anything about archaeology, but I'm told that one of the best places to dig is in the latrines. When people want to get rid of stuff, they throw it down the toilet. And, of course, this is ancient medieval latrines. It's not very difficult to dig in. But when they were digging down there and finding bits of old pots and stuff, they found fossils, stone tools, and saber-toothed tigers. And underneath one saber-toothed tiger skeleton was a jaw. And the jaw was the same as those jaws that we found in Mariacotomy in Kenya. And they found lots of them. Here's a nice skull upside down. And now they found several good skulls. There's one of them. Beautiful condition. Lots of limb bones, and they're finding more as we speak. And so every time they dig, they've, done it, they've dug about, I think about as much as this little podium here so far, and they've got something like four or five skulls and lots of limb bones of these early Homo erectus, which is remarkable. And they aren't digging at a fast pace, but they shouldn't, and it'll be one of the world's great sites. Now, apart from the humans there, or the Homo erectus, there are other carnivores, right? And I've just shown this picture of Natural Geographic, and there are seven carnivore species. There's a lion, two saber-tooths, a bear, a hyena, a wolf, and a marten. We'll discount the marten because it's tiny. But humans, as, as members of this large guild of carnivores, they, they have to share the space with those carnivores, and they have to share the meat with those carnivores. They can't be there doing any, any better than the carnivores can. So here's some, a way of looking at it and thinking how thin these, these creatures were on the ground. This is a graph from some people who've done work on carnivore numbers. Uh, so it's the number of carnivores per 10,000 kilograms of antelope or any food on the hoof versus the size of the carnivores. And if we put on the size of one of the Homo erectus, you see here that there'll be one for 10,000 kilograms of prey. But that's sharing it with a lion, two saber-tooths, a hyena, etc., a wolf. So these, these were... These early hominids that came out of Africa were very thin on the ground. You wouldn't bump into them on a game safari very often. They'd be very widely dispersed across the countryside. What about the time spent feeding? Because that's an important thing. And this is a little graph where we plotted uh, the, for some herbivores, from uh, small uh, mouse-like herbivores to elephants, the time spent feeding during the day, that's 80% of 24 hours, an elephant spends nearly... 80% of the time moving to feed or feeding because it has such a bulk to feed and the fermentation chamber in its gut can only be so big. Carnivores, on the other hand, they all of them, whatever size they are, whether you're a pussycat or a lion, you only spend about 10% of the time. And you know what they do the rest of the time. They sleep, right? Just like my cats. They're out there. They're, you think they go out and they're racing around? Or, no, they're not. They're under a bush asleep. That's what they do. So, but if, you see, that's what carnivores do with their heritage of being carnivores. What if you were an intelligent primate and you did this and you dropped from being there, spending 40% of the day and night, like 10 hours a day feeding and moving to feed, and you suddenly drop down to 10%. What would you do with the extra time? And that's something that you can think about, right? Okay. Now, about the locomotion. 
It looks from that skeleton. It just looks like a human skeleton. Everybody who looks at it says, it's a neurocotomy boy or whatever, right? And it does look strikingly like a human skeleton. There are tiny details that an expert would look at. But there is another way to find out what, how that animal was moving, and that is by looking at another part of the locomotor system that's not to do with the limbs. It's in your head, right? And it's the semicircular canal system. Now, we can do a little experiment now because we've got time. You've all got something you can read, I'm sure. Anything would do, a piece of paper with a, something on it. And what I want you to do is to hold it up, and then I want you to move it backwards and forwards at about two hertz, twice a second, like this, and see if you can read it. Anything to read will do it. I don't care. Driver's license, anything. And if you move it backwards and forwards like that and try to read it, you can't. Now I want you to hold that still and move your head backwards and forwards. Right, hold the thing still and then move it, jerk your head backwards and forwards. Side to side. Right? And then you can read it, right? Because your semicircular canals are doing what they're supposed to do. The semicircular canals are the receptors for the eye muscles and the neck muscles. Right? They keep your vision, your primary vision on your retina stable. Without it, the world would be a jerky place and the, and the primary visual cortex at the back of your skull would have a difficult time making sense of it. So these little tiny eyeball muscles are finely tuned to, to jerkiness of locomotion. And we know that certain animals that have very fast and jerky locomotion, like peregrine falcons, have huge semicircular canals because they have much more gain in the system than animals like sloths that have, or chickens that have small semicircular canals. So I'm just going to show you where the semicircular canals lie. This is a, a chimpanzee skull, and I'll just subtract the bone so you can see the sinuses and stuff here. And then I'll subtract that, and now you can see the semicircular canals and the cochlea, the organ of hearing there. Now, my colleague Fred Spohr from University College London has studied the semicircular canals of things like this. And so here is we've subtracted all the bone and reconstructed in the computer from micro CT a great ape. There's the organ of corti for hearing, which we can't tell much from. Uh, and then the, these are the three semicircular canals. You see a human has the anterior and posterior semicircular canals that are the canals in the vertical plane, the one when you walk makes your locomotion makes it jerky, they're much more enlarged than a great apes because great apes are quadrupedal, slow-climbing animals, and they don't have this jerky, walking, running locomotion. So we can ask, what about Homo erectus? And we can ask, what about Australopithecus? And I've got only Australopithecus shown here, but what we see is the Australopithecuses are just like great apes. It doesn't seem that they were walking and running with the same jerky locomotion that we have, even though they were bipedal. They were slower and less jerky. I haven't got a reconstruction of a Homo erectus, but what's really interesting, as soon as we see those Homo erectus with that human-like skeleton, they've got the big anterior and posterior canals. They already have that jerkiness of locomotion. So we can tell that immediately. So their locomotion would have been faster. And this is a plot. Just Since I didn't show you a reconstruction, I showed you data. This is a bunch of primates. This is the semicircular canal radius against body mass. We have to normalize for body mass because long pendula ticks slower than little pen, short pendula. And these are two Australopithecuses here. These are great apes here. There's a Homo sapiens, and Homo erectus fits exactly where it should be. So Fred showed that Homo erectus already had the jerky, fast human locomotion. So here's a, the Nariocotomy skeleton again, and we can look at a few features of it quickly. And we can see that body size increased over Australopithecus. 
Some of these creatures were uh, quite tall. The gut size was reduced. You can even see that this creature had a sort of waist and a narrow pelvis shows that. And the lower limb was elongated, as in modern humans, for faster stride and, and greater speed. And what about tools? We're hopeless with our teeth, but tools, well, the first Homo erectuses only had chipped rocks, the same as the earliest uh, Australopithecuses, but they soon developed these things. This is, this is a hand axe from early on in Africa, about one and a half million years ago, and this is one that was quite late, about uh, 300,000 years ago from London. So these are two hand axes, and there's a debate going on among archaeologists, and I can't judge it because I'm not an archaeologist, as to whether these are the tools themselves or whether they're the packet after the tools have been broken off and the packet's been thrown away. As you walk over Africa, as I've done for years, you find these things lying all over the landscape. They don't go away. And what you notice is that the sides of them are not sharp. They're the sides that have been hit. And what's sharp is the tiny blade that's come off with a, a thick edge here and a sharp edge that's come off here. Anyway, there's a debate that I can't answer. But these things are the standard tools of Homo erectus. Now, what about life history? How are we ever going to find from the fossil record how uh, long anybody lived or the life history periods? This is a famous graph done by Adolf Schultz years ago, and it shows the life history periods for some animals. It's in a sort of um, ladder of life uh, arrangement, lemur, uh, monkey, gibbon, chimp, and humans. It's a sort of ascending scale, but I mean, that's really an ascending scale of size, but um, if we look here uh, and compare chimps and humans, we have about the same gestation period. Uh, humans don't have much longer gestation period than the great apes. We have a longer infancy period. We have a longer juvenile period. And we have a long active uh, adult period, and we live much longer. And that extension of our life history periods is a very important one for, for humans. And we need to know if that was there in the fossil record. Now, the work I'm about to show you isn't completely conclusive, in fact, it's controversial, but I'll just give you an idea of how we might get at it. So what about this particular extension of a human life history period, which is adolescence? Adolescence is this period where um, you're not adult, but you can be sexually active, but fortunately not very fertile. And uh, it's a, a period that's not seen uh, to any great length. Only diligent observers of chimpanzees think they've seen it, but it's very common in human populations, as you know. And was that there in the early Homo erectus, or was it not? Well, we've got some uh, evidence from, uh, that we can look at to see whether these things uh, apply. First of all, this is some work done originally by Adolf Portman, the great Swiss ornithologist and biologist. Um, he plotted brain weight against body weight for a whole bunch of dead embryos, dead fetuses, and dead baby monkeys and dead juvenile monkeys. And what you can see is that during fetal life up till birth, the brain grows very, very quickly. And then at birth, it slows down and you get the next half. You get about half, if you're an average primate, get about half your brain at birth. And then you get the second half of it over the next juvenile period. And Portman got the same data for humans. So these are dead human embryos, dead human fetuses, dead human babies dead human juveniles, etc. But what's interesting is birth occurs here in humans. You're born with about 400 grams, which is about the size of an adult chimpanzee brain. 
And during the first year, you get another 400 grams. In the first year of life, so you're growing your brain, even though you're born and you're outside the womb, you're growing at fetal rates, which is an extraordinary situation, unlike any other primate. And then and only then do you slow down and get the final third until you're about five or six years old or somewhere like that. So this first year then, is, is, it's as though you had a gestation period of 21 months instead of nine months. Nine months inside the womb and 12 months out. And so here is, is, is where a fetus that's outside. So it's getting the stimulation from the outside world. Now, of course, it wasn't not stimulated in the womb, but everything in the womb is muffled. The tastes, the smells, the sounds, etc., are all muffled in the womb. But once you're outside, here is, a, here is an animal. The sensory system is a complete sink for information, but its motor system is hopeless. Right? So it's a really interesting uh, situation that only humans have. And we could ask the question, could Homo erectus have done that or not? Because if, if so, that's an important human characteristic. And the answer really is no. You can manage it. If you give birth with the same sized infant as a human, then you can just, like a normal primate, double that till you get to 800 as an as a early juvenile. And you could manage quite well. So there is no reason to believe that Homo erectus, despite something I've written in the past, had this human attribute that I was wrong in the past. Okay, so is there a better way of doing this? Well, it comes from studies of the insides of teeth. So very briefly, I have to teach you how teeth grow, if you don't already know. And so teeth grow from the epithelium on the outside of the gum. And so this is the outside of a gum, and they, that, those epithelial cells fold in, and they make a little shape, a cap, the shape of a tooth. And when they're here, they attract the attention. Uh, so they these cells here line up like this, and they're going to be enamel-forming cells called ameloblasts, and they attract the attention of some magic cells called neural crest cells that migrate in from the developing sides of the developing spinal cord, and they, and they line up against them, and these are going to form dentin. They're called odontoblasts. And the enamel cells form out, grow outwards, and the odontoblasts grow inwards, and they gradually, between them, make dentin on one side and enamel on the other. So this is the dentist a shop's view of a, of a tooth and you start calcifying at the cusp tips and you gradually grow and grow and grow and the side forms later the, 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 the dontoblasts grow in and make all this dentin and they, those cells still survive in your pulp cavity. But like all calcifying organisms, we do it on a daily rhythm. And so in, in, in all of you, if you've got your teeth, you carry a record of your tooth growth when you, you're making your teeth as juveniles. Some of you were making your teeth in utero. Your first molars start in utero. And you can count these little blips. So this is a trace of a single, where an ameloblast grew like this. And each of those little blips is a daily increment according to your daily circadian rhythms of, of uh, metabolic activity during the day and night. And if you could take sections of teeth and count up those daily rhythms, you can see how fast teeth are formed. And it happens that teeth are a good surrogate for life history periods. So this is some work by, uh, that I did in conjunction with Christine some time ago on sets of Australopithecuses and African apes and humans. And what we find out is as we, as we see enamel thickness plotted against formation time in days that you can count, is that humans form their enamel slowly and can do it for a long period of time. Those robust Australopithecuses can do it for a very long time and make very thick enamel. 
And African apes and our early Homo erectuses do it at a faster rate. So it looks as though Homo erectuses were doing it at a chimpanzee-like rate and not at a human rate. Now, some of you will have noticed when I pointed out those little daily blips, they're going on this slide, they're going this way, and the daily blips are here, that there were some other long periods stray here. And those are interesting features that are seen optically and of unknown origin, but they're seen in a thin section of tooth. And sometimes we can't section teeth um, for, because if you ask a curator that's got an ancient human two-million-year-old skull, can I cut the teeth up? They're likely to say, no, they'll only give you broken teeth or isolated teeth. And in the case of nariocotomy, then they certainly wouldn't let us bust up the teeth to slice them up. Um, but they do have outside features, and this is a much more difficult undertaking. Um, those long period striae show up on the outside of teeth in this crude diagram like this, and they're called pericomata, and they look like tree rings if you cut the tooth across. And on the front teeth, they show up as fine lines, like this. And you have to take account for the amount that's missing from the top, and you have to account, take into account the, the way that these are not fully represented on the surface. And you have to take into account all sorts of developmental defects that can cause miscounts. But when this was done for the nariocotomy kid, this is here, this, the nariocotomy juvenile, and we plotted it next to crown formation times done from sections in Australopithecus, it came out to be like Australopithecus is not like this back line like modern humans. So the take-home message from this seems to us to be that these, although these creatures looked like humans, they didn't have the growth periods of humans. They didn't have the long extended life periods of humans. Now, I've told you about some things that we might get an answer to, but there are some things that are very difficult to do from the fossil record. And one of them is a very ancient question. Did these things speak? Now, of course, they had vocalizations, just like chimpanzees or gorillas have vocalizations. Most mammals have vocalizations. But spoken language, where we use arbitrary symbols for objects in our, in our world, like I, I say cat, and, and, and uh, uh, a French colleague may say chat, and Kamoya says mpaka, it's all, you know, we all have the same thing in our mind of a picture of a cat. Um, so how can you get that from the fossil record? And it's very, very difficult. A colleague of mine, Anne McLaren, Notice with the nariocotomy vertebrae that the neck vertebrae, right at the top of the thorax, where the spinal cord is thickened and fits very tightly, she noticed something that I pointed out to Kamoya when we found these vertebrae in the field, that that canal for the spinal cord was very narrow, as opposed to this is just a, a, a modern human I picked that has the same size of the weight-bearing part of the vertebra, so the spinal cord was fitting here. So. That's where the size of the nariocotomy spinal cord would fit, and that's the size of a modern human. You can see it's about twice the surface area. And Anne McLaren, who did this work, thought uh, from various studies done on fairly normal people, medical students, that, uh, that uh, German and French-speaking medical students had needles put in their muscles to see how they recruited their muscles when they were talking. And since the structure of French and the structure of German sentences is different, they recruited the abdominal muscles and the intercostal muscles, the ones between the ribs that control the breath that gives you uh, the sentence structure. They controlled them differently. So Anne thought that this was an indication that the nariocotomy juvenile didn't have that control and couldn't make the sort of uh, breath that needed a structure of, of a sentence in grammar that we have. Now, that's very controversial. 
And uh, we don't even know whether this narrowness is typical for Homo erectuses because this is the only one we've got so far. However, the site at Damanese, they're pulling bones out every season and they will bound to be finding more bones in that region and then we'll know. If they are narrow too, then that's a big indication that language capabilities were not at all like human capabilities in the past. But, of course, by the time you get things like this showing up in the archaeological record, the, the famous uh, uh, painted caves in France like Lascaux, uh, shell beads that's fairly late, about 27,000 years or something like that, shell beads uh, from, from uh, South East, southwest Africa and pieces of ochre with cut marks on it all about uh, something like 160,000 years ago. Uh, some bone harpoons for fishing that are claimed to be early and this skull from Ethiopia at 160,000 that has cut marks and polish on it as though a skull has been carried around for a long time. All those suggest that, that, that people were talking about stuff. So I, I don't think anybody would have any trouble this late, after 200,000 years ago, that people are talking to each other. It's, it's how do you get to know what's happened earlier? It seems to me that a lot of things that we think of as human, long extended life, life periods, um, uh, the ability to speak and to think abstractly and so on, are very late. Despite the fact that we might have looked like humans from a distance as, as long as two million years ago. Now, I showed you Michelangelo's David from the front before, but I'm showing it you from the back now because of one thing, and that is his sling. Charles Darwin pointed out that much of... Charles Darwin did not take my approach when he thought about human evolution. He, he was smarter than me, but he, he didn't have my evidence. He thought it all went together as a single package. He said, we stood upright, that freed the hands, that made the brain get big, and we used our hands for tools, and especially throwing. Now, uh, it isn't a package, as you've seen, we were upright for several million years before our brains got bigger. Right? I mean, bipedalism wasn't the key to making tools, and it wasn't, in that sense, it wasn't the key to, to be having bigger brains. But Darwin might have been right in that we are throwing animals. And not too much has been written about throwing. I've had one of my graduate students working on a biomechanical analysis of throwing and as Bill Calvin, the neuroanatomist and neurophysiologist, pointed out, the, the trick to throwing is in your brain. And that, that is when to release, right? Anybody can throw an object some distance, but will it hit anything? And in order to hit something with the right distance and the right accuracy, you need to be able to release within tiny fractions of milliseconds. And one thing Australopithecus had was long arms. And long arms mean that when, you re when you're swinging at the end, throwing something, your hand is going very quickly. One way to get the release window down is to shorten your arms, and that's what we see in Homo erectus because it makes the release window broader. So it could be that throwing is a very critical part of human evolution. We ought to pay more attention to it because, after all, we are throwing animals. First of all, we threw rocks. Then we threw spears. The earliest spears are beautifully balanced spears of 400,000 years and now we throw atom bombs. So it's a matter of some concern. Also, to follow on for something that's very difficult to get from the fossil record, I would say impossible, we can look at this. My friend John Gurchie uh, reconstructs for the general public what 
fossils look like. And this is a female Australopithecus skull that we, worked, we found at Kubifora in Kenya. And if you notice, he's put in whites to the eyes. And I said to John, you know, it's true that humans have very wide and narrow eyes, and they have whites to their eyes. And if you take that away, it looks different. John said, I, when I did this, when I reconstructed her, I thought she looked really cute. Now my mate recognition systems get lost. I can't, you know, she doesn't look cute anymore. So what is it about the white eyes? Why do humans have whites to their eyes and African apes, other apes, don't? And the answer to me is, it's obviously a, a very useful thing to know where another human is looking, especially if they have a long-distance projectile in their hand. When coalition, remember these early, early humans were very thin on the ground, and when they met another group of early humans, they weren't at all friendly as when we meet other groups of humans. We're not necessarily friendly. And it's just as well to know what you're thinking and what your friends are thinking and what they're looking at. And it's not just for the quarterback and the cornerback looking at the quarterback's eyes either. So anyway, that's something now. How can we get at that? And the answer is I can't do that from the fossil record, but there are certain disorders of the pigmentation system that crop up in humans as genetic disorders. And if we can find those, if we can find the genes responsible or the transcription factors responsible, then we might be able to do a molecular clock on that and we might be able to find out when this occurred and if we can tie it into something else. So I'll close with that. I'm happy to answer questions. Yes, sir. Uh, the question is about uh, Anne McLaren's work on the recruitment of muscles, actually other people's work that she incorporated into the fossils and how this works. Okay, so language, right? Um, uh, I'm talking about spoken language, not written language, of course. So when you when you... When you talk, you breathe in, right? That's from the diaphragm. And the nerves that, that the diaphragm pulls down, the nerves of the diaphragm don't, aren't there, they're outside. They're from very high up, right? The second and third, third and fourth cervical nerves, they come down the outside. So they're not involved here, right? But then once you've got that breath in, you then push that breath through your vocal cords and all they do is vibrate, right? They make noise, right? And after that, that noise is then modulated by the sinuses in your head and your lips and tongue to make the shapes, to make the vowels and so on, right? And you break it up into consonants with your lips and tongue and teeth. But the structure of the sentence, right, comes about by the whole way you breathe the phrase, right? And if you have a sentence with the verb at the end rather than in the middle or whatever, then the breathing structure is different. So that's what she was picking up on. Yes, sir. Thank you. Can you tell us what the prevailing theory is about uh, why Homo erectus died out all those years ago? Uh, well, everybody heard that. I don't believe Homo erectus did die out. I think we are uh, the direct descendants of Homo erectus. It, but I am not a proponent of large numbers of names of species. 
I think it's been uh, the reason that there are so many species names around today is a conjunction of two things. The first was uh, the, the adoption of cladistics in, in uh, phylogeny. Uh, cladistics is a, a method of uh, invented by uh, the entomologist Willie Henning to, to put characters together, yes, no states usually, uh, into a structure. And we have, as I showed you, exactly the same dental formula for the last 40 million years. So we don't have many different yes, no states. We're different in degree. And it combined at the same time with uh, my old friend Steve Gould's uh, pushing of punctuated equilibrium as the, as the way in which evolution worked. And I was a good friend of Steve's, but he was mischievous in this. Steve would take old ideas and resurrect them and say they're new and brilliant. And the idea that Steve said that everything works in jerks, you know, evolution by jerks, um, co coincided with cladistics. So everybody tried to make individual fossils fit into a scheme, and it became very typological. So, you, you know, people would find this skull is one species and this other skull that looks very similar is another species, and it's clearly not the case. And I think that we have to take into account a very large amount of variation in living humans and living anthropoids. It's been known for a long time, since Adolf Schultz in the 1940s, that humans have less variability in their skeletons than most apes, and that's because he didn't know that. But humans went through a genetic bottleneck fairly recently. So I believe that all these species names are just, uh, they're just little population variants, and, and the story is much more simple. There are, of course, some, some populations that go extinct. And naturally, I mean, the fate of most populations on Earth is still extinct, I think. But that doesn't mean to say that the species goes extinct. Uh, I'm not in this field, but I, I just happened to read something about a guy named Dan Lieberman. Mm -hmm. um, this notion of uh, animals are, you know, much better runners than than us for short bursts, but humans are the best long distance runners in nature. Uh, and maybe there was this notion that we could run after animals until they collapsed, exhausted, as a hunting strategy, something like that. Um, do you have kids? Um, ask any nine-month pregnant woman how fast they can run after anything. Um, so half the population probably wouldn't be able to run much at all anyway. Now, the, the plain fact of the matter is that's a scavenging hypothesis, right? It's, they said that they could go and get animals and scavenge from them. Well, if you're part of this very fierce guild of large mammals, um, there are several things you have to deal with. First of all, there's interference competition. You're in competition with animals with claws and teeth for the very food they're trying to eat. Secondly, there's another group of animals that can make a living out of scavenging, and they're vultures. And vultures do it because they have fantastic eyesight, they have wonderful sense of smell, they can see a carcass from miles above and get there faster than any mammal could get there and get the food, right? So I don't believe that this is a a strong case. When modern hunter-gatherers, that are people like us that we've pushed to the limits of, of eco ecosystems, they're out there in the deserts and rainforests, places where there's not much to eat. Um, when they do, deal with animals, what they can do is they can chase an animal out of its territory. Speaking to the, the model where you say, oh, you can see the vultures in the distance, so you go 
jog there. No, I'm just saying but, that vultures will get to the food first before yeah, you do it. Yeah. But isn't there a whole separate case where, you, as, a, as a routine strategy, the hunters can run after a, you know, a yeah, buffalo I was just, yeah, I was until just it collapses, and that's repeatable. Yeah. That's a technology, it seems with, to me. With, with modern hunter-gatherers, uh, like the, the San people, they, they can chase an animal out of its territory. All these animals are territorial. And when an animal's out of its territory, it turns back, right? And they don't run after them. They walk after them, the, right? Is that true? Yeah, they walk. They just they push them out of their territory, so the animal's out of its familiar environment. It keeps doubling back and doubling back, and then they've got weapons, of course, too, right? So, I, I just think that the energetic argument that they were putting forward didn't work. Yes, ma'am. Um, how is it that humans and in the in species like in that have evolved to walk on two legs, while all animals all other animals walk on four. Um, you know, if you can solve that one, you can get a Nobel Prize. <laughs> we, th there, are, there are very few ideas about it, right? Darwin thought it was throwing rocks, right? I mean, he put that through. He said it was weapons. And the reason he saw that, right, you have to... You, when Chuck Darwin went on his voyage around the world, right, he, he went to a place called Chiro del Fuego in the southern tip of South America, and he saw people there, the Tierra del Fuegans, and they were uh, people who were naked, and they were diving in the sea for shellfish, and they were knocking birds off branches with rocks. They were very good throwers. In fact, later, the Tierra del Fuegans beat up a group of Englishmen with guns by throwing rocks at them. They were better than people with guns. And Darwin said, because he had that victorial mindset, he said, I looked at these people and thought, that's what our ancestors must have been like. You know, naked savages throwing rocks. And it really, it, no, it really made an impact on him. Um, and, and so he, that was part of it putting all together, the, the throwing, the brain, the, the posture, the pelvis, everything, right? And some people have, have looked at that and looked at it in a new light. It's just that the, whether that's the beginning of it, I don't know. We don't have stone tools that are associated with the onset of bipedalism. As far as we can see, the earliest evidence might be about six million years ago for bipedalism, and there, there doesn't seem to be any stone tools. If you're looking for some external force, like a climate change or something, there are so many wobbles on every climate curve that you can find a wobble to match anything. Right? So it's very difficult to prove any external cause. It's, it's just that people have ideas, but it's very difficult to, to nail any of them down. The question is about semicircular canals and, and, and what they look like in other animals. And I've just completed a four-year study of looking at semicircular canals in mammals. And we've, we've done 200 species of non-aquatic mammals. Aquatic mammals have a different problem. And we've used a micro-CT machine, a very expensive $3 million CT machine, to look at fossils and, and other mammals. And we've looked at marsupials, and we've looked at flying lemurs and lemurs and a whole bunch of things, and we can confirm that, uh, that those animals that have an up-and-down jerky motion have the anterior and posterior canals increased in size. Those, and those animals that are, also have a smaller component of the lateral canal 
So they seem to be stabilized in that vertical locomotion. So the lateral canal is smaller. Yes, absolutely right. There's a, a, a big, a, a, a simple story hidden in a lot of data. Wonderful talk, first of all. Um, you talked a lot about uh, the role of meat and, and hunting uh, in, and the, the effects that that had on, on the early Homo sapien populations. And I was wondering your take. Um, some people have suggested that the role of hunting in meat has been overemphasized because the tools used are better preserved as compared to like a digging stick or, or some of the gathering tools. And you did mention tapeworms, but um, I'm wondering if you, and I, I think in the introduction you talked about maybe you've done some research um, with, with dental wear. On, and, and how do you support the actual, let's say, percentage of the caloric intake that's based out of meat um, versus, versus vegetables or, 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 or gathering? There are several points about eating very high caloric, easily digestible food. And one is that you have to have it to grow big babies, right? Humans, I haven't pointed this out, but humans have the same gestation period as a chimp or a gorilla about, and yet they grow a baby twice as big. We make really big babies. It's a striking fact. And we can only do that with very nutritious food. Then, once the baby's born, of course, the baby's one trophic level up, right? So now the mother is only going to, the baby's only going to get 10% from the milk, right? So a lactating mum's going to have to work harder and get more nutritious food, especially if you've got a baby with a big brain. Right? Because the brain, your brain now is taking up, well, you're sitting still, so you, you know, it's taking up most of your energy. But if you're average walking around, it's taking 25% of your energy or something like that every day. I can't remember the figure, but something like that. Using an enormous amount of energy because neural tissue is, is extremely expensive to run. So you do need high energy foods to do the stuff. Now you can get high energy foods by growing it. But that's a very late thing. I mean, the earliest date, someone's an archaeologist here that can tell me, the earliest date for domestication and, and, and growing of crops and things like that is something like 6,000 years or 10,000 years at the most or something, right? So it's been a very, very short time that people sat down and grown enough food to feed a big body and a big brain. And the evidence of the tapeworm says we were doing it, right? So I think that the evidence is there. I'm saying that the people who gather now for a living have been pushed there by people like us. And they're in the world's worst places. They're in deserts and rainforests where there's not much food at all for mammals. And they're, and they're there, and they, they do a really good job at it because they're clever like us, right? But they're, politically, they're not clever like us. Otherwise, they wouldn't be there. They'd be out in the lushest parts of the world, like the prairies or someplace where we are now. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I think that the, the evidence shows that humans were much more of hunters than we thought. These are early humans, remember? I'm not talking about the people who suddenly decided that they settle down and, and protect their crops from wild animals or other people and then turn into city-states and, and buy their strawberries from and, 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 and roses from Colombia, you know? I mean, <laughs> I mean you know, the, the, the modern world is a, is a very strange place compared to the world of Homo erectus. There's people over there. You mentioned at one point early on that uh, there were two species uh, that uh, were found very often together, buried together. 
uh, could it have been that they killed each other or was there any evidence of any violence? You said something, I, I it seemed to, yeah, seemed to talk about the fact that they seem to live side by side. Well, uh, you know, I can't prove that they live side by side. They're dead in the same geological bed, right? Um, so, but, uh, you know, chances are they did see each other. And I wouldn't put anything nasty past early humans, quite frankly. I, I really believe that, 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 um, that you wouldn't want to be close to early humans. I think... Quite frankly, there are a lot of late humans you wouldn't want to be close to. <laughs> Back to intelligent design. Why do men have nipples? Uh, why do men have nipples? Well, you know, we don't know we're going to be men until we're quite old. And it could, it, you, there are these people, you know, that don't have the receptors for testosterone. And so they grow up women. They think of themselves as women. Their parents think of themselves as women. Um, it's just that they don't have uh, ovaries. They have testes. But the, the, the receptor for the androgen isn't there. So they grow up as women, and they have breasts. And, but they have testes inside. It's just that the, they are XY, but they don't. The body can't recognize it, right? So we're not, we're not, you, you don't know you're going to be a man or a woman until much later. And so they're there, you know. Is it possible to study an early hominid brain, such as by taking a cast of the inside of the skull? And if that's the case, this is a language question. Then can we make any conclusions about Broca's or Wernicke's areas and how well they were developed and speak about language in that way? Okay, so the question is about bumps on the, on the brain, the surface of the brain. And I believe, well, I'll tell you why I don't believe there's much going on there. Alan will bear this out. We have two colleagues. Uh, 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 Ralph Holloway from Columbia and Dean Falk, who's now in Florida, Florida State. And they're about the only people who've published on this in the last 40 years. And they just publish anti-articles against themselves, right? And they say, this bump is there, this bump isn't. And, and it's been a non-fruitful uh, research area. And the reason is that inside the skull are the meninges. And these, these structures uh, are quite thick. And especially on a big skull, and they're protective of the brain, and they do all sorts of stuff, they hide all the de tiny details. And even if you knew the tiny details, what's going on in the soft tissue is not very perfectly matched to what's going on on the bumps on the surface. So I can show you chimpanzee brain casts that have a very beautiful broker's cap which is Broca's area. And Broca's area, you know, Broca himself studied people who had damage to that area from swords and injuries. And, and it disrupted their grammar, but it didn't stop them stuttering speech out, right? And so there is, is too complicated an issue in the, in the plasticity of the brain to deal with this sort of stuff. It's, a, it's, just, it's not been a fruitful area. It's a shame. Even quantitative work on that has not been a fruitful area. Maybe we ought to have one more question and, and let Professor There's Walker one at the back. Oh, you uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, summary question. Um, what what uh, discovery, what single discovery do you dream of making that would kind of be the smoking gun for a lot of this? Well, there's a lot of all of this, you know. I mean, the, well, right. The, but. We, we, have, we have this debate, right? The reason I didn't talk, talk much about the very early stuff is that, that, first of all, it's not been published much. Second of all, there's a bit of hype. Um, you probably 
know from your own, is your own field in biology? No, anyway, but, um, yeah, okay. Um, the, the journal Nature, which is the premier journal in, in, in science, is, uh, has editors, but they're advocates as well as editors. And so we've got some fossils from Chad, which have been put out at 7 million years, whereas the answer is they're really about 6 million years. But that 7 million keeps being pushed out and out by people as, as though it's true. And um, if you read the journals carefully, you'll see that the reviewers, me included, have pointed out that that shouldn't be done. So there's a bit of hype about all this. And they've not been fully published yet. There's some other fossils from Kenya that hint of bipedalism, about 6 million, and so on. So we've only got scraps from 6 million. But it's likely to be about the time, the molecular clocks say that's about the right time for the start of bipedalism and the start of our human lineage. So finding skeletons from that period would be great. Now, some places you find a lot of individuals, and they're places that Alan's worked at, like the caves in South Africa. These are open caves, and individuals get dropped in there by leopards and saber-tooths and things like that. Like that skeleton I showed you that Ron Clark is digging up. And you get a population over a few thousand years. So you can look at variation, and that's very instructive. But when I've worked at open sites, you know we find the odd jaw here and the odd jaw there. And even though we've got a series of rocks that go through a whole deposit, sometimes time in rocks goes sideways, not layer upon layer. The point bar on a river bank builds out this way, so we get fluvial deposits, river deposits built out sideways. So a fossil could be over here and hundreds of thousands of years older than one over here. Right? So it's, we, f we find little hints of pop bits of populations through time and occasionally good chunks of populations that help us out. But we really need now... I think the earliest six million year old stuff would be fantastic to get. Um, and we're doing quite well on the later stages of humans and archaeology um, as we go to the last unexplored places on Earth. Thank you very much.